Well, we are, um, we, we, if, if you are reading with us, and I hope you are, and I, I always want to say it's not too late to join the journey and be a part of this experience. Um, this book is the book we're reading. It's called Beginnings. It's a really understandable version of the Bible called the New Living Translation. It is actually the first five books of the Bible, but it looks a little bit different from the one, if you have one. Um, because there's no divisions except just the actual books themselves. The way this was originally um, designed, all these books came ultimately, uh, different ideas and different sources and and what have you, but ultimately it was put together, um, predominantly we believe, by one person, um, but then there were editors later involved. It was a long process. God's Spirit worked in many ways, and it really was probably initially like this, in a sense. Um, there were divisions because a scroll could not contain all of that writing. It was just too much for one scroll. Uh, And so it was divided up. But really, this is one work. It's one story. Jews call it the Torah. Lots of Christians have used a Greek word, Pentateuch. Uh, Really a five-fold book. But we're saying beginnings because it's the beginning of the universe. We thought about that a couple of weeks ago, the very creation itself. The beginning of us, of the human race. Uh, scientists may find out a lot to help us understand ourselves and even some things to help us understand the past. But what science cannot possibly touch or reach into is why we exist at all. Uh, science can't really touch the deepest realities of what makes us us, what makes us different than other creatures. It's, it, it can't simply be exchanged, explained as, as chemical or biological matter. You, you and I instinctively know that. We have experiences, we have thoughts and feelings and lives. We have a sense that certain things are good and certain things are bad, that some things are beautiful and other things are tragic. And we know that there's more to life than all of this. And Genesis helps us understand that the ultimate beginning of the universe, and of us comes from a God who's not an it, but a person. And he made us like himself. He made us to be able to feel and to think and to speak and to listen and to enter into relationships. He made us so it would be possible for us to do good and to see beauty and to love it and to hear something that was fun and crazy and laugh. That's God's design in who we are. But the very beginning of the story also tells us and gives a sense of what went wrong. And, and you go back to the very first story, Adam and Eve, two people in a garden, a perfect place, a place of blessing. And God had given them everything and said, this is all for you. I just have one guideline. I want you to know, I want you to remember that I want you in charge. I want you running things here. I want you caring for this creation. But I want you to remember that you, you don't own it. You don't really own your own lives, and you don't just get to call all the own sh- your own shots, just do whatever you want. You are, I placed you where you are, and I gave you life. And the best life you'll ever know is a life you receive from me. And so I'm giving you this guideline. It's a real simple thing. Just don't touch this tree. Don't eat the fruit from this tree. Trust me instead. And that was great. I mean, you understand that none of us would have done it, right? I mean, we got all this stuff, just one thing not to, not to go to. But isn't it amazing how, how, how that works out 
in human life? Man, the draw. And the moment that Eve and Adam believed a liar about themselves and about God and about his designs and his plans and made a choice God had said you should not make, they understood things in a brand new way, but it was never the same again. There was a separation between each other. There was confusion within themselves. There was surely a separation from God. Instead of being open with God, instead of hanging around hoping that God would come along and want to talk to them, they went and ran and hid from God. And ever since then, and you know it in your own life, we've been doing a lot of hiding, haven't we? We've been doing things we shouldn't have done, and we felt the break with somebody else or the distance from God, or the unsettledness in our own lives. And we've tried to hide things from others, and we've tried to hide things from ourselves, and we've tried to hide things from God, which is ridiculous. But we've tried. And there would have been nothing else to it. Here's the thing the stories unfold, is that, is that when one thing goes wrong, uh, other things go wrong. And what superficial evil, or, or, or just shallow evil, becomes deeper and deeper. And into that setting, God looked in this world and he chose a man, not because he was so good and not because he didn't need anybody else's help. Maybe he picked him because he was a typical ordinary human being. Abram and Sarah. He said, I want you two to start something new. In fact, I want you to be the two in which I start something new because I know you guys don't have kids and you're not able to but you're going to. It's my promise to you. In the book of Genesis, from chapter 12 through chapter 15, what we've read and and just finished in the past week unfolds that story of this family. A childless old couple who were figured they were going to be bones buried in the ground and all forgotten, no name to remember at all. But we know their names 4,000 years later because they had a boy. And that boy had boys. And those boys had boys and girls. And life went on. And still to this day, that family in some ways is a really small one. The Jewish family in the world. But in some ways there's been no family like it in human history. You know what's amazing? That that family exists today at all. At all. Because the effort to snuff it out has continued from moment one, from the very beginning. That's the story we're going to explore this morning. But God kept that family in existence. And that family continues to bless the world today in amazing ways. Just check out the Nobel Prizes for this, that, and the other thing and find out how many Jews have Nobel Prizes for amazing initiatives and discoveries and understanding and you'll understand that the world has been blessed way out of proportion to this little family from Abraham. But that's not the main thing, the main story. The main story is who we are and why we're gathered here and it all goes to the name of Jesus. And in Jesus, that little family is a huge family. It's a gargantuan family. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions, billions on the planet. 
And that life has impacted the world more than any other. And we are, in the book of beginnings, exploring that. We will not see the name Jesus in this book. But Jesus is all over this book. And the promise of Jesus is in this book. Near the end of Genesis, you remember the story when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. Great. God's family. God's going to change the world and bless the world through this family. How screwed up can you get? Huh? And they sell a son off. They sell a brother. Granted, he was annoying. He thought he was the best thing around. He thought he was special. His dad thought he was special too, which made it that much more annoying. They all got okay clothes. He got the awesome, it was just an amazing coat. Everybody could see it from forever, far away. And it was so, it was the best thing. And they hated him for it. And they got rid of him for it. Done. You know what's amazing? God knew that somehow or another, a couple of years down the road, a famine was going to strike the land. And it was uncertain whether they would survive. Lots of people have not survived famines. And that whole family could have disappeared off the face of the earth and nothing ever would have happened except for the fact that a son was sold into slavery and went to Egypt and one thing led to, the, to another, an amazing story. The best way to find out is to read the book. You can see the movie, but the book is better. Okay. But he rises up to a position of power and influence. And in the end, as he put it, What you all, my brothers, meant for evil, God intended for good. And he preserved that family in Egypt in a different land. Awesome. But do you know what? The Jews prospered in Egypt. They grew. And they grew in influence. And here's the thing. They were an immigrant group. They were an outsider group. And when outsider groups start doing really well, People sometimes don't like it. Joseph was a great name and people knew about Joseph. But the time came a couple of generations later when a pharaoh came to power, the leader around the the, the country, and he didn't know the name Joseph. He didn't remember that name at all. He had no understanding and no appreciation and no gratitude and no commitment to this population group that was so bothersome to them all. And so quickly they became enslaved. And that was it. Well, we can't cover the whole story. The, the video did a pretty good job of it. But, uh, hey, Super Bowl's coming. The Minnesota Vikings are not in it, but they came close. That, except that last game wasn't close at all. It's been a long time since they were in the Super Bowl. Four times back in the 1970s. I think it was like 70, 74, 75, 77. Four times, relatively fast, lost every single one of them. Jeez. Man. And I actually kind of liked the Vikings back in those days because uh, they were bad days for my team and I, I, I thought the Vikings were kind of cool. And they had a coach whose name was Bud Grant. Any of you remember that name? I was reading a, a, a football story in the Star Tribune, a, a Twin Cities newspaper yesterday, online. I don't, I don't get that paper. But uh, it was an article about him, about Bud Grant. He's 90 years old now. Again, like I said, a long time ago, he was the coach of the Minnesota Vikings. 34 years ago, he retired from that work. So um, in the article, it says this. This is almost 34 years to the day that he first retired from the Vikings. He was 56 years old then. 
His six kids had finished college and he had played football or basketball or coached every fall for 40 years. And he said at the time, there's some valleys I want to cross, some mountains I want to climb, some streams I want to wade. And amazingly, at 90, he's still doing it. He's a devoted hunter for birds. And the coordination is just fine. 90 years old and as active as could be. And I was reading about him and I thought about Moses when I read that. Moses had been taking care of sheep for a long time. How about 40 years of doing that? Uh, Every year when he was climbing a mountain one day. But something changed and was different. I don't know that Moses hunted birds. I have no information on that. But he waded streams and more. He climbed mountains, one in particular. He was 80, not 90, but 80 when our story begins. And his travels went on for another 40 years. The article in Bud Grant says, He walks more stiffly than he did a few duck seasons ago, sometimes shuffling with his shoulders hunched. But his mind is sharp. And the circuitry that coordinates his eyes and hands is untarnished. The sun is not yet fully gathered over the eastern horizon, and already he is down to pair of Drake Mallards, his alignment with the speeding fowl, fluid and assured. That must have been something like Moses. But Moses went to a mountain. And in our story, he goes to the mountain, what you're going to explore this week, two different times. I want to read a couple of words from that, from Exodus chapter 3, to begin with. It goes like this. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And Moses stared in amazement. And though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. And when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord told him, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, And Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. It was sometime later, really that same year, a lot had happened. A lot had happened very quickly to Moses and through Moses. But it was sometime later that Moses was back at that same mountain, making the climb again, though higher this time. Listen to these words. And then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay there, and I will give you the tablets of stone on which I have inscribed the instructions and commands so you can teach the people. So Moses and his assistant Joshua set out, and Moses climbed up the mountain of God. And Moses told the elders, stay here and wait for us until we come back. 
Aaron and Hur are here with you. If anyone has a dispute while I'm gone, consult with them. And then Moses climbed up the mountain, and the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from inside the cloud. And to the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. And then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain, and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. There's two moments in the story, a whole lot missing in between. What's missing is Moses' commission, Moses' understanding really what God wanted him to do. Moses pushing back against God. God, I'm not qualified. I'm not able to do this. You've got to find some other guy. And, Moses, and God's saying to Moses, Moses, you are my man. I will do what I need to do through you. This will work. I'll bring your brother along your side. He will work with you, and it will happen. And Moses met Aaron, and the two of them approached Pharaoh, who thought they were a joke, and thought this reference to some strange God he'd never heard of was just a joke. Who's Yahweh that I should care about him? Why should I pay any attention to him? And the next days and the next weeks unfolded a series of, we call them plagues, of, of uh, sort of natural disasters that, that occurred with supernatural timing and intensity to judge the nation of Egypt and the leader of Pharaoh in particular. And again and again, Pharaoh pushed back against God. Pharaoh said, no, who's the Lord that I should care? And through that interchange and, and through the dialogue that took place, both with God talking to Moses and God through Moses talking to Pharaoh, we come to understand something really important about God himself. And that is this, that the God of the universe is a God who wants to be known. He wants to be known. He doesn't want people to be strangers to him. He doesn't want human beings to be unaware of who he is. He doesn't want you and me to go through life and not have any clue why we exist, not have any clue how we got here, not have any clue of the meaning behind the universe or upon, behind our existence. He wants us to know him because he is the answer ultimately to all of our own questions about our own world and our own lives. He wants to be known. And here's the thing the story shows us. He will be known. He will be known. He will be known ultimately in one of two ways. He will be known as the God of redemption and the God of love and the God who cares for his people. Or he will ultimately be known as a God who's a stranger and a judge. There was nothing that prevented Pharaoh from knowing God as a friend and God as a blesser. If Pharaoh had listened to Moses, if Pharaoh had come to trust God's word that God gave to his people through Moses... The whole story could have worked out entirely differently. God's people came to know Yahweh in a brand new way. They came to realize that God wasn't just a fable from a different time. That God wasn't just an idea, a, a, a nebulous reality that floats in our imaginations or sometimes we feel something and maybe that feeling is God. But that God is real, that God is alive, that God is powerful, that God acts, that God speaks. And especially this, that this God acts in history. And when I say he acts in history, I'm not talking about just 
old times, I'm saying he acts and lives and moves and has his being in the same world that you and I live in. What we call the real world, not a pretend world. So when the early um, followers of God, the early people of God, came to describe him, they described him in very particular ways. He was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why do they call him that? Because God had made a promise to these three fathers. And that promise was ultimately a promise for the world, but the way anybody in the world would ever know about it was through the promise God gave to Abraham. God is the God of Abraham. Before he is ever the God of Craig, he's the God of Abraham. God didn't come to me. God didn't come to me to bless bless the world. God came to Abraham to bless the world. I need to know Abraham's God. They they found they discovered him and talked about him in, in yet another way. In the days to come, in fact, when God Moses went up on Sinai and God gave him some communication for his people, particularly guidelines and, and commands, uh, strong guidelines for life, it began with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You remember that phrase? Um, it's really important because the God we worship and the God we know isn't a three-letter word that we get to define. God is a God with a history. God is a God who's acted in the world. God is a God who's done something. And he wants us to know it, know him in those terms. The God we worship, the God we meet through Jesus, is the God who freed enslaved people in Egypt and set them free and took them to a new land. That's the God we worship. A Christian theologian, Robert Jensen, who just died this past year, paid special attention to that. And he says for us as Christians, we should, we should think about that phrase. The God we worship is the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who before had brought his people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You know, when we talk about God in our lives, eventually we have to get particular and specific because people mean and feel a million different things about God. And when you talk about God and somebody else talks about God, you might not be talking about the same person. Do you know that? You recognize that, don't you? Which God do you worship? Which God do you trust? Which God do you listen to? Do you know who we're called to listen to? The God who freed his people from slavery. The God who raised Jesus from the dead. The God who made a promise to Abraham. I think what that means, among other things, is this story is our story. This story is our story. There's another word that's used a whole bunch of time in the very story that you're going to read this week as this unfolds and and God takes his people and frees them from Egypt. And it especially kicks in about the time of the Passover, the instructions about the Passover and how it took place on that particular night. And it is the word remember. Remember. One of the things that God said was, this day, in this month, this will be for you the beginning of the year from now on. And it was a way of locking into their calendar a sense that God did something new, that God set them free, that God redeemed them at this moment, and he never wanted them to forget it. 
So when the calendar would come around, they would naturally think about who God is and what God did for them. Do you have any dates on your calendar? On your calendar, in your life. We have secular holidays, we have religious holidays, we have school schedules, we have work calendars, we have our vacation dates, we know our birthdays and our anniversaries and our kids' birthdays. All good. Do you ever, in your, even in your own personal life, have any days that stand out because you remember an experience or a moment where God did something special in your life? Maybe it's the day you met Jesus. Or the, the day you said yes to Jesus. Or maybe it's the day that something pivotal in your life happened. Man, now, birthdays are pivotal. Wedding days are pivotal. But sometimes there's other days that are pivotal in a marriage or pivotal in a life. We should remember. We should remember what God has done. God wanted his people to do that, and so he gave them the practice, not just the Passover as something that happened once, but the Passover as a meal that would be celebrated again and again and again so that people would never forget. You know what yesterday was? It was International Holocaust Remembrance Day. We're more than half a century on of that other effort in recent times to wipe the Jewish people off the face of the earth. And it's up to us, the people on this planet, but especially Christians, not just Jews, to never forget to remember. God wants us to remember. He wants us to dwell with that. He wants us to remember because you and I are going to constantly face situations and moments in our life that are disconcerting, that are discombobulating, that are, are, are distressing that are confusing. And we need to know who we are, and the way we know who we are is by knowing who God is. And we need to have a sense of where things are going to go, and we don't have any particular information about what's coming right next. But we know something about what God has done in the past, and the way, and the many different ways he's been faithful to his people. To people in Bible times, Old Testament, New Testament, to people in our community and our church and our family from decades past and our own lives in the past year, we draw upon all of that so that we do not forget and so that we can live and move forward. I want to just uh, close by telling you a story, a real brief story. Maybe some of you know the name Gladys Aylward. I'm trying to remember the name of the movie uh, starring, oh gosh. Ah, never mind. It's not going to happen for me. So, Glass Aylward was a British woman who became a missionary, uh, I think in the early 20th century, to China, before the days of the communists. She was rejected at first. They didn't want to take her. But eventually, they allowed her to go. And uh, so, I'll just read this little story. Gladys Aylward, missionary to China way more than 50 years ago, was forced to flee where she was living in China during World War II when the Japanese invaded Yang Chang. But she could not leave her work behind. So with only one assistant, she led more than 100 orphans over the mountain toward Free China, an area that was not controlled by the Japanese. In the book, The Hidden Price of Greatness, the authors tell what happened. During Gladys' harrowing journey out of war-torn Yangcheng, she grappled with despair as never before. 
After passing a sleepless night, she faced the morning with no hope of reaching safety. A 13-year-old girl in the group reminded her of their much-loved story of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. But I'm not not Moses, Gladys cried out in desperation. Of course you aren't, the 13-year-old girl said to her. But Jehovah is still God. And when Gladys and the orphans made it through, they proved once again that no matter how inadequate we feel, God is still God and we can trust him. The story you will read and explore this week is an old one and an ancient one, but it's a good one and it's a true one. It did change the world. It's changed history. We would not be here today in this place right now. We would not know the God of the universe. We would not understand our own lives if it wasn't that God rescued his people and walked them out of Egypt through a Red Sea away from their enemies into a new land if he did not bring his own son to become flesh in that family. This is our story. And it's our lives too. Because the God who said, I am who I am, is the God who said this to Moses. I'm the God who is with Abraham And I am the God who will be with you. And that same God speaks to you and me today. I am the one who will be there with you. I will never forget you. I invite you to always remember me. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this day. And we are grateful for the story and the lives and the experience of your people thousands of years ago. In them, you showed who you are. In their experience, you showed what kind of God you are, what you're like. And you invited human beings to trust you, even people like Pharaoh. Father, we want to be like Moses, ultimately. We want to be people who hear your promise, who hear your word, And believe not just it, but we believe you and trust you. Help us this day and this week to know that we need not fear anything. For God is still God. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.